This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. So let's stand together, and we're going to read Ephesians chapter number 4, and one verse, verse 28. And the reason we stand is because we stand in respect to his word to distinguish this in our hearts and in our posture as God's word. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the things that um, I want to do before I dive into this text, which seems pretty obvious, I guess, is to ask you a question. And I'm not just asking the question to kind of for you to give me the right answer. I actually would rather you think about it for a moment, so I'm going to give you space to do that. I'd rather have you think about it for a moment so that there would be uh, the light of the gospel, the light of the Spirit shining in your heart, and that you would see what is true of your heart, not what do you know should be true. How much are you concerned about your spiritual maturity? Lord, take that question and, and make it real to us. How much are you concerned with your spiritual maturity? I think we know the right answer, but that's not what I'm after. I'm not after the right answer. I'm after your heart answer. What we have to at least admit is that there are many things in our world. Now, when I critique American Christian context, I don't want you to think that my critique of it is from the outside in. Like, look at those crazy people. It's, I'm in it. I'm with you. We're in this. We live in this country. We're a part of this world. We're amongst this chaos. So I'm not critiquing it as an outsider. I want you to hear that everything in American Christianity takes Pure, pure, godly, biblical words and redefines them and re-carves them to become created in our image. That suits us. So many of us, because of the culture we live in, have taken this word maturity and defined it in a different way as success. I want you to hear this from me today, that success and maturity are two completely different words with different meanings and can only be defined in different contexts, meaning success in the world that we live in, American Christianity or America, has taken success and meant this. To be successful, you have to be completely independent. All you need is yourself, and you look out for yourself, and you are independent.
independently wealthy. Money is a huge part of what it means to be successful, or maybe the size of your business, or the level of education. How many degrees do you have after your name? And so when you finish those degrees and you get that level of education, then you are more successful than others, or you are successful. And, and many people can define success differently. Or maybe it's the size of business you, went, you run, so you are a successful business person and the amount of people that you manage. And the list could go on and on. However you want to define that term, especially in your own heart and your own context, what is success? And the problem with this is what we've taken is American terms of success or our heart carving out what success is, and we've tried to lay it over the scriptures and call that maturity. So people who are mature... In our American Christianity are people maybe who are independent, who don't need anybody, people who have a lot of money, or maybe they have a high level of education and they've got degrees in Bible and they understand scriptures better than anybody else and they can out-argue or out-talk or maybe they have bigger successful churches and the size of business that they run determines their success or maybe the size of ministry they have or whatever it may be. Those are the things that go, this person is a mature Christian. The problem with that is that success and maturity in scripture are, are completely different. Now, I'm not demonizing success because a successful person could be mature, but it doesn't mean they're mature. Because we can at least admit there's a lot of people who have a lot of money that act real immaturely. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of education, but act real immaturely. You can have success. I, I don't have to demonize it. But when you make that the marker of maturity, what ends up happening is you take a, a, a spiritual, biblical context that is defined in the context of church family or family context, and you go into the business world, where in the business world we define success differently than mature. You actually don't have to be mature to be successful in the business world. In a family, that's, that's it's extremely different. The problem with many of us and our spiritual maturity is we've taken American, uh, American Christianity and laid it over, and we constantly feel, uh, we constantly feel like uh, we're, we're missing the mark. We're empty. We're not loved. We're far from it. And so we're trying to find ways that we could work our way up the ladder. Because here's the difference between success and maturity. I, I, I think you should write these things down and meditate them on them later. Later. Success is found in a context of works-based behaviors. You live up to these levels of, of works and you can be successful. Maturity is found in the context of loving family. 
where you understand the whole, the whole of the reality, the heart of what it is, and you understand a person and where they're at, right? I mean, the reality is if I leveled my success and I looked at my, uh, at my daughter who's six years old and go, listen, you're not very successful. Get a job. Pay some bills. All of y'all would be like, that's dumb. Doesn't make sense. Because in the family context, there's a reality to levels of maturity, and a family has those who are strong and weak. Not everybody's trying to be strong. In a family, there has all these things, people who are, de- who, are, who are providing and people who are dependent upon the provisions. There's those who are working and serving in different ways. A family has all these different elements and aspects, and it's being known in that family that helps to determine what role and place you should play. And what you're determining based upon the person you know is, I want to see them grow up healthy not want them to become just successful. Here's the problem. In success, what we want is people to be impressed with us. That's our biggest concern. In a family, we want to be loved. Here's the problem. I think more of us are concerned with God being impressed with us than we are with him loving us. More of us are concerned with God being impressed with us than we are with him loving us, and that flows into our family. We are more concerned with impressing other people than we are with loving and being loved. And the reality is, inside of love, we are not trying to impress, but we are boasting in weaknesses so that the grace and the love of God may abound, and we're living inside of this community where we are loved, but we're not very impressive. Can I say there's a massive issue with our spiritual maturity and formation, because it's a work works-based reality where we're trying to impress God and other people and we wonder why we're so immature. Can I just say something that may free you? God is not impressed with your success. I'm going to say that again, maybe with a little more gusto. God is not impressed! With your success. I'm telling you right now, he's not spending a lot of time going, oh my goodness, look at my boy, how big of a business he's got. Look at how fat that bank account is. (laughs) And no wonder, no wonder, we have such a generation in the church and in the world around us, in America culture, who has so many daddy issues, so many parental problems, is because they've lived in a family structure where they're constantly having to try to impress their parents. And they never know what it is to be loved. Because they're trying to earn something. They're constantly trying to live up to 
their parents' idea of success. And then they come into the church and they hear, what do I got to do to impress God? And so they try to come up with a list. Well, you should tithe. You should read your Bible. You should do this. You should do this. And we start being laid under this weight of God. I'm going to impress you. And here's freedom. He's not impressed with you. But you will never know love. from God. He loves you. He loves you beyond words. He loves you beyond measure. He loves you beyond cost. It doesn't matter how much he's got to empty of his riches. He is going to show you how much he loves you. If you want somebody to be impressed with you, you'll be distant from God. But if you want to know love, he'll draw real close to him because that's where it's at. I'm going to tell you this. This is not only ruining our relationships with God, it's ruining our relationships with one another because we're all trying to impress each other. We want to show how independent we are. We want to show how strong we are. We want to show how powerful we are. We want to show how much we can do on our own. We don't need any help. How many degrees we have in our names. How many, all these realities. And can, I, can, I just, can I just tell you? Division is so deeply rooted in the church because we care about impressing and anybody who's not impressive, we can't love. I'm going to date myself with this slide. I'm old now. And you maybe haven't seen the movie, okay? Honey, I Shrunk the Gospel. There's a movie called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. A, a dad's a scientist, he shrinks the kids and he's got to admit to his wife, honey, I shrunk them. We got to find them. We got to, you know, make them big again. And I think it's time for the church to admit they've shrunk the gospel. The reality is because we don't know the beauty and the expanse and the wonder of the gospel, we've shrunk it down to fit inside of our, we've carved an image rather than worship to God who created all things. It's not that these things aren't true the way we preach the gospel. It's, it's not that there's not elements of it that's not true. It's just shrunk. Ephesians chapter 1 starts with this beautiful declaration of the, of the beauty of the gospel. And as a matter of fact, it starts with a song. Because I think the, the, the right posture when you hear the gospel is singing it. Adoring it. Not trying to figure it out. Not trying to become an expert of it, but a worshiper of it. That's why I think Paul starts with a song. Look, he could have preached it. Let's sing it. Because, man, when we're singing it, we're just, we're lost in it. And what he talks about is that there is this God who has gloriously created everything out of his love. Do you realize there was nothing but chaos and emptiness? And there was nothing to go, 
hey, I want to be on your team and be impressed by you. God created all of this out of love, not out of something being able to earn it. And he created everything as it should be, and it was all one. Heaven and earth were one. God and man were one. Man and woman were one. There was no divisions. Creation and all of it was one beautiful display of the glory of God. But sin comes in. And what sin does is take things that are supposed to be one and rips them apart. And separates them. That's why sin causes separation. What gets separated? Heaven and earth. God and man. Man and woman. Creation. Everything gets separated and destroyed. It's living under this curse and it's all separated. And then in chapter 1, what he declares is that in Christ, what God is doing is showing that he is going to take everything that's been separated because of sin and he's bringing it back together. What's he going to bring back together? Well, he's bringing about back together heaven and earth. He's bringing back together God and man. We've been separated from God, but in Christ, we get to come back together. He's going to bring back his church into one, one new man. Then later, when we get there, he's going to talk about work and husbands and wives and children and parents. Notice that a lot of this, all of this, is hinged about how Christ brings back into relationship what's been separated. So when we ask this question, do you care about maturity? Not success. Do you care about maturity? You have to expand the gospel and start asking, what do mature people care about? What does God care about? I'm going to tell you this. People get tired of hearing this, especially during this series. You're like, how long are we going to talk about unity? About racial unity? About poor and rich unity? About this unity? About that? How long are we going to talk about unity? Do you realize that every book in the New Testament is burning with the question of unity? Do you realize Jesus' last prayer is burning with unity? Do you realize how much of family work is about unity? Do you realize how much about maturity is about unity? How much do you care about unity? Or are you tired of hearing about it? Just teach me how to be successful, Pastor. Just teach me how to get more money and have bigger cars and, and maybe throw in there how my marriage could work because this thing is crazy. <laughs> but I could care less about the family of God and I could care less about people living in unity because you're immature. God is not impressed with it. Matter of fact, what this requires is for something else to come back together. This, repentance and faith. What is this? Can you see it? What is it? 
a penny. No, it's heads. What is it now? No, it's a penny. Did you, you see what I'm saying? When you try to separate a penny into heads and tails, you make something that's supposed to be one into two things. And the reality of how much time we spend about talking about repentance apart from faith and faith apart from repentance is impossible because it's one thing. It's two sides of one thing. You can't have faith without repentance and you can't have repentance without faith. These two things are one. Matter of fact, it's like flipping a coin. Heads or tails, it's still a penny. Sin spends all its time trying to dissect things that are meant to be one and can only be understood as one. Because we live in an enlightenment age, in a scientific age, what we like to do is dissect everything. And if we understand the liver, we understand humanity. Come on. You will never understand God by just studying one part of the Trinity. Because they cannot be known apart from each other. There's different characteristics and personalities and things that you can see and appreciate, but you can never know God without knowing the other parts. And here... Herein lies a massive problem when it comes to this idea of repentance and faith. Because this verse we're going to talk about today in the context of maturity, where Paul is saying, maturity, we got to grow up and we got to become united. Notice he didn't say you got to grow up and uh, make more money, get a higher degree, right? No. The mark of maturity is love and unity. And inside of relationships, here's, here's, here's how it starts to work. This doesn't work in success worlds. This works in family context. Because in success worlds, if you repent of something, you are constantly trying to make people impressed with you. So if you repent, they won't be impressed with you. So what do you do? You hide your weaknesses and exploit your strengths. In success worlds, you just show how strong you are. In relationships and in love, you boast in weakness. In repentance, when I see something that is destroying the very unity and fabric of the gospel, when I see something that is destroying the very heart of all that the gospel is, when I see that God opens my eyes and I realize the things that I have been doing have been self-centered rather than focusing on God and his people, when God opens my eyes, I have to turn towards God. Repentance means to turn. If I'm going this way and I need to go that way, what do I do? I need your help, y'all. What do I do? I turn. Do I turn away or do I turn towards? I do both. I can't do one without the other. 
I have to turn away to turn towards. I have to turn towards to turn away. In a turn, I have to turn away from things. I have to turn away from immaturity and selfishness and pride and things that are destroying. And I have to turn towards who? Towards Christ. And I have to turn towards him and ask for his heart. Now listen, inside of a relationship, you realize that this is not a one time. I said I'm sorry and I never have to do it again. You realize that every day, God is using others, not only for you to bring things to them, but he's using them as a mirror to show selfishness. How many of y'all didn't realize that marriage would be an eye-opener to how selfish you were? Or for some of you, how selfish they are, right? Because <laughs> they're definitely more selfish than you which justifies your selfishness, which perpetuates the problem. <laughs> this reality of repentance and faith has to be seen in one. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, 28, he doesn't just say, Stop stealing! Can I just... Um, can I just say how unhelpful you are when you just tell people to stop stuff? <laughs> and can I also just tell you this, like, um, it actually took no thought or revelation to tell somebody to stop something. Yeah. And I, I honestly feel like the church has built their message on telling the world to stop things like they don't know they shouldn't. Like, stop stealing. Yeah, okay. Stop looking at this. Stop doing that. Stop being this way. Stop, 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 stop. Just stop. Like, we are really believing in our hearts and minds that if people would just stop hate, that love would happen. Church, it's just not true. It's like posting out on Facebook just random. Like, I just wish people would stop. Yeah. You're not helpful. <laughs> they know they should stop. But they also know what everybody else should do to stop. And they also think they have an idea of what everybody else and what you should do to stop. And they think you should stop saying they should stop. I don't think I have to spend much time on this because the reality is um, when I say stop stealing, I, I hope to God none of you in here would be like, break that down, pastor. I'm not really sure what that means. <laughs> Preach that to me. Now, just stop stealing, right? I think what we need to do is expand what we think stealing actually is. And I think we can only understand stealing is when we get away from thinking stealing is taking something from somebody else. That's one element of it. But in Scripture, stealing is expanded into, Acts chapter 2 gives us this idea of 
all the church coming together and their aim of, of unity, when Christ brought them all together and the church was established in Acts chapter 2, they were marked by sharing everything with each other. Acts chapter 4, 32 says this. This is two chapters later, right before we go into the third chapter, chapter 5. All the believers in one heart and one mind, no one claimed to have their own possessions. They didn't own anything. They shared everything. With great power, the apostles continued to testify. And then verse 35, as you skip ahead, says the apostles would get the, 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 the they would get the, those, the, they put it at the apostles' feet and they would distribute it to everyone who was in need. And no one had need. So everybody was cared for. Everybody was sharing. There was this reality of bringing it. And then in chapter 5, all of that breaks apart. Ananias and Sapphira come. Isn't it interesting that chapter one, God creates shalom, and for two chapters, shalom take place, and then chapter three, it all falls apart because of sin? Isn't it amazing in Acts chapter two, two chapters, there's shalom of church, and then falls apart in three chapters? But have you ever noticed that sin in, in Genesis chapter three is someone eating fruit? I mean, come on, guys. None of us eat fruit and feel like we sinned. And I'm going to tell you this. None of us would do what Ananias and Sapphira did and felt like we sinned. They sold all their property and gave it most of it to the church and just kept back some for themselves. They even gave more than 10%. They gave a lot. They walk in to give their offering. Here you go, laying it at the apostles' feet. They die, one right after another. What an, what an offering service. What if we did that today? Give your offerings. Ushers, get ready to drag dead people out. And what do they get confronted on? Lying and stealing. Because the reality is, in our context, we would think that's generous. But what they were doing is taking a context where people were fully giving and sharing with one another, and they were stealing from the community and acting like they were all in. They get confronted for it. And die. You see, many of us are like, well, I don't steal from anybody. The question is, what do you define stealing as? Are you withholding anything that God has entrusted to you and keeping some for yourself? Yes. That's me. So he doesn't just say stop stealing, but he makes sure to partner it with this other side. Do honest work. Do honest work. This is important. Because we live in a culture where honest work is demonized for something else. What is it? Fun work. Many of us don't work because we don't think 
It's fun. And we're constantly looking for jobs and believe it is a human right when it's actually just an American concept to do work that is fun and let everybody else do the hard work. Other, other cultures, other nations, other contexts. But us, we get the fun stuff, the money stuff. And there are many people, honestly, who are stealing because they're living selfish lives where they will not work because they just want to do fun stuff. We're stealing from the community because we're not willing to work. Honest work. Hard work. Sweat from your brow work. Hey, if you got a job that you really love, praise God. Keep it. Do great at it. That's amazing. But don't preach it as gospel that everybody should have that. You should be thankful, not prideful. And many of us learn more about honest work when we go, look, God, whatever you provide for me, I'm going to work for your glory and for the good of my family. Wayne shared a testimony a couple weeks ago about how he was pursuing his own Career, selling drugs, doing all these kinds of things, and then all of a sudden, his son comes along, and he grew up real fast because he did not want to be the kind of father that was gone in pursuit of his own success and money. So what did he do? He got a job to take care of his son. I'm going to tell you this. That's maturity. That's maturity. And many of us wonder why Scripture looks so harshly at a, a man who won't provide, who will not work and will not provide for his family. Why? Because he's living selfishly, not maturely. He's not willing to work. He's not willing to go out and do what God has provided for him to do. He's not willing to go and provide for his family. And this reality has nothing to do with God wanting to punish us. But it has everything to do with us living lives that are full and mature and caring. But notice this. He doesn't just say, stop stealing and go to work. Because still, those two things by themselves are not enough. Because how you answer those two questions is what really matters, right? Stop, start, add this to your notes, with the right heart. Stop, start, with the right heart. Because here's the reality of what repentance really looks like is that you're not repenting from stealing and returning to work. You're going back to the heart of Jesus, which is to share. Because here's the heart of a mature follower of Christ. All that I have been given is meant to share. That's the heart of Christ. That's the heart of Jesus. 
So if you go, I need to stop stealing and go to work so I could become rich, you still don't have the heart of the Father. I need to stop stealing and go to work so I can just take care of me and my own. You still don't have the heart of the Father. Because the heart of the Father and what we're repenting to is living in such a way where all that matters is me. Here's what maturity is, church. Maturity is realizing that what we're doing in maturity is becoming more and more like Jesus. So instead of looking out there at what everybody else calls successful and what everybody else respects and what everybody else appreciates and what everybody else is impressed with, here's what maturity is. Is it really looks at how can I, with what I've been given, become more and more like Jesus? And this is why this is important. Because I would never look out in this room and say, y'all need to stop stealing and get jobs. Why? Because I would be like looking at my six-year-old and going, get to work. This text is speaking to who? It's speaking to those who are strong and powerful and have and sharing with them, you need to get to work and stop stealing because there's people who are in need. What they are stealing is from those who are in need. Do you realize he's not talking to some just lazy person? Who he's talking to is people who are, he's talking to Ananias' and Sapphira's who are holding back for themselves and all they care about is just themselves and their own and all they have and they haven't grown into a place of maturity where they're caring for those in need. And I'm gonna tell you, when you really move into maturity is when you see this little beautiful baby and you fall in love in this place and you see someone who is in need and fully dependent upon you and it becomes your greatest joy to have the heart of the Father to do all you can to care for them. That all that I have is not just mine. I, I will tell you this. An immature father is not just somebody who just works a job. An immature father is not stealing, and maybe he works a job, but he spends all the money on himself. While his wife and his kids and his family is struggling. Listen to me. Just because I have a job or just because I'm in a place where maybe I'm not stealing. My, my question is, are you concerned with your spiritual maturity? And some of you go, well, I'm, I'm in a place of need, Pastor. Uh, how, how, does this, how does this really apply to me? Maybe I, I'm in a place where I, I'm a widow, I'm an I'm orphan, I'm caring. Listen, this is in the context of family. I'm not screaming out to all y'all and going this. But I will tell you this, if I look at Kairos and I still treat him like a six-year-old and go, hey, buddy, don't worry about it. I'll take care of you for the rest of your life. I'm also not a caring father. I got to say, you got to get a job, son. Because in family, maturity makes sense. 
because you know the people. I know some of you. I know some of you are in places where you're in desperate need and in struggle, and I'm not screaming at you. Here's what I'm saying. We need to know you and love you and care for you. But as you grow and mature, you've got to start to see the ways in which you have to start living into the same reality where a community that really works is people who share everything they have with each other. Which means you have something to share too. And you can't keep stealing from everybody. You got to grow up. You have to grow up. Because what's at stake here, church, is the unity of the family of God. And as we grow more and more into the image of Christ, what are we celebrating here at the table? I want to, I want to take the three things and then we'll take communion. Are we celebrating that Jesus never sinned? Part of it. One part. But I'm going to tell you this, not many of us spend a lot of time just talking about the greatest accomplishment of Jesus is that he never sinned. Or are we celebrating that he did the only work that only he could do? He came and did the work that only he could accomplish. Now we start seeing We're not just saying he didn't sin, although he didn't sin. What we're celebrating here is that Christ accomplished a work that we could never accomplish. That we were the needy ones. We were the weak ones. We were the ones who are fully dependent. We're not independent. We are needy and weak and fully dependent. And if he didn't do the work, we couldn't be a part of his family. Hear this. We're not just celebrating that he didn't sin and that he just did the work. But the reason he did the work is so that he who was rich became poor so that all of us who are poor could know what true riches are and have full, restored rich relationship with the God we were celebrating. We're celebrating no sin, the finished work, and the sharing with us. So when we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, we're not just saying, stop, start. We're saying, stop, start with the right heart, because that's exactly what God in Christ did for us. He didn't sin. He knew no sin. He did the work that we couldn't do and he shared it with his family because the greatest source of his riches was that his whole family would be restored back into unity and oneness with one another. And I'm telling you that as we come into this family, when we're going to start to grow into real spiritual maturity, if you care about your spiritual maturity, is not when you just stop doing bad things. Some of you are so convinced that all God wants you to do is stop doing bad things. 
that you spend all your effort and time just trying to like, I'm going to stop, I swear. I go, please stop. I just want to do it so bad. Okay, fine, I'll do it. Because that's what you're just worried about repentance and impressing God. Rather than seeing, I got to turn towards him. So I'm turning away and I need to ask that I would begin to do his work and live into by his power and his strength so that I can have his heart and share with others. That's when we're going to start to grow up. It's when we care about what he cares about. Church, this will speak to many of you on many different levels. Some of you, you may need to go get a job. Others of you, you may just see like, wow, I need to be a part of the family and share in ways that I can. I don't know how it speaks because why? In this room, all of us are at different places in our life and different ways. But I will say this. There's one Jesus and one Lord and one Father who knows all of us and by his spirit is taking his word and making it alive in our hearts so that we as his family can live as one. So as the tables are open, I pray that we come to celebrate the gospel. Not honey, I shrunk the gospel, but the gospel. That God in Christ is making us one new man. And I look around this room and I see the most beautiful family of God. I see all nations, all tribes, all tongues, rich, poor, men, women, young, old. I love being in this family. I love being in this family. Now I'm going to tell you this. Not because you got a good job, not because you pay good tithe, not because, but because we love each other. And, and that's the baseline that makes me go, hey, some of y'all need to get a job because I love you. And you're living selfish lives. You're selfish. You need to start caring for people. Grow up. I love you. Now get going, right? And others, it may be, listen, we got you. You're in need. We got you. We care for you. You're a part of the family. Let's, come on, trust us. We got you. That doesn't mean the conversation won't change in a couple years. Doesn't mean, is it? it just means we got to know each other. We got to love each other. We got to come to this table and know that we all play different parts. And I, I'll tell you this, in some years from now, when I can't do the work that I've I've been able to do by God's grace. I'm going to need you all to take care of me. I'm going to need people who live the same way. My body's weak and it's growing tired. It's not going to be able to keep up with the pace of success. But what we do have is family. What we do need is to know the gospel and that we have a father who loves us. So as you come to the table, let's pray, let's repent, let's commune together, and let's sing. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. 